We'd just like to thank everybody for coming. Um, and um, just in terms of our um, panel discussion on accommodation. And in this case, um, we're just trying to use this as a conversation um, among the panelists and myself. Um, and you know, if we kind of move the, the, the stand forward, so we're just, you know, so in that sense, it's to create a, a, a discussion in terms of travel accommodation, um, the challenges within that, but also in terms of looking at some of the solutions. Um, and I am absolutely, this is a, I just want to thank the organizers for inviting me to be part of this conversation um, and preliminary discussion. And I think it's one that's really important and significant in the context of travelers in Ireland. Um, so um, without any further delay, because uh, we are running behind time, um, I'm going to start maybe just, um, you know, introduce people. So we have, um, starting beside me, we have Patrick, Patrick McKenna, NUI Galway, um, and um, lecturer in housing and housing rights. We also have Rory Ahern, PhD in policy, economics, um, and on housing policy from NUI Minute, and also to say um, many other things, um, and also an author. Um, and he will have a, a book being published in terms of housing. Um, we have Emily Mortag, um, the National Accommodation Policy Officer with the Irish Traveller Movement. Um, and beside Emily, we also have Nora Corker, um, community development worker, um, and a graduate of university, um, um, and delighted to have you here as well, Nora. Um, and without further delay, just to introduce myself, I'm Bernard Joyce, um, I'm a very proud Irish traveller, I just want to say that. Um, secondly, I'm very lucky to be the director of the Irish Traveller Movement and have been the director for many years, um, but have engaged, but have probably been involved in the sector um, for you know many, many years and probably too many. Um, but what's really important is that the work that we do and the changes that we try to make is about the outcomes for the community um, in Ireland. So um, just, just to highlight that. Um, so look, so the first question we're, just, we're going to ask the panel just to look at um, those challenges, some of those issues, um, and some of those solutions. So what I'm gonna su suggest first is that we go to Emily. And Emily, if you could just bring us through what you see as some of the challenges and some of the issues. Yeah, so um, as Bernard said, my name is Emily Mercia. I'm one of the National Accommodation Policy Officers with the Irish Traveller Movement. And I suppose a big part of my role is bringing together um, representatives from local travel organizations, some of which are here today, um, and just taking the insights and experiences and expertise of the local organizations and working together collectively to advocate um, for the reali realization of traveler rights in relation to um, accommodation. Um, so I suppose, um, as you all know, we're in the midst of a massive housing crisis in Ireland at the moment, and one that is only getting worse with uh, homelessness levels coming towards record uh, levels. But when you look at the um, at traveler accommodation, there is always 
been a crisis in Ireland in relation to the delivery of, of traveller accommodation. And I suppose it can be very much situated as one of the biggest human rights violations within the history of the Irish state and one that we have been most frequently brought to task um, at both an international level through bodies like the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, the Universal Periodic Reviews, and also through the Council of Europe, as we've been hearing over the last few days. Um, I suppose, I just, when we look at that crisis, I suppose we'll be hearing later um, about, um, from Nora, about what that looks like on a local level, but I just kind of want to give you a national overview. Um, I suppose um, at the moment 39% of all travellers are living in overcrowded accommodation and the Ombudsman for Children did an amazing report last year that really situated that in terms of the experiences of traveller children living in those um, situations and a quote from that has really um, just stuck with me and um, one of the girls who lives on that site she said it's like an abandoned place that people forgot about, it's like we're forgotten, we feel like garbage. Um, and that girl lives on a local authority run halting site in Cork where um, that was originally designed for 40 people and now 140 people live on that site with the corresponding impact in terms of fire safety, in terms of health risks. Um, and obviously those issues have just been brought into even more sharper focus during COVID-19. Um, and I know Rory will talk later a little bit more about the overrepresentation within homelessness in some local authorities. Um, they're making up as close to 50% of the homeless population and um, while making up less than 1% of the overall um, population. And even this week, we were just, it was just brought to our attention a family of seven who were sleeping in a Garda station for two nights with no other accommodation offered um, and until there was legal representation made by an independent law centre. So that's the, the scale of the issue. Um, and I suppose when, in order to understand how this problem has arisen, like we need to look back, and I think that's really in keeping with the theme of this conference. And I suppose the first state policy in relation, the first official state policy in relation to travellers was the report of the Commission of Itinerancy, which was published in 1963. And I suppose that task force was set up to look at solving the problem of itinerancy and looked at um, encouraging the absorption of the itinerant population, the traveller community, into the overall population. And it just conceptualised as travellers and a nomadic lifestyle as a problem to be solved. And as Martin Collins said earlier, as a failed settled people and not as a culture and distinct ethnic group to be recognised and celebrated. And I suppose since then, there's been different policies in relation to traveller accommodation. And while in language, it's moved away from that kind of assimilationist language um, in terms of um, the actual recognition and understanding and facilitation of traveller culture, um, we haven't seen that progress. And I think that was most re recently captured by IREC in the quality reviews. Um, just that lack of recognition by local authorities of what it means to deliver traveller-specific accommodation. Um, yeah, and I suppose in terms of that kind of policy framework, another key moment was the delivery of the, the uh, enactment of the Traveller Accommodation Act in 1998, which was campaigned for a long time by the traveller activists. And it's like quite a progressive piece of legislation planning for the delivery of traveller accommodation every five years, uh, instructing local authorities to do needs assessments and deliver. But since 1998, um, the problem hasn't been with the policy, but in how that policy has been implemented by local authorities. 
and just that failure of local authorities to deliver on culturally appropriate traveller-specific accommodation. And I think that's best demonstrated in the fact from 2008 to 2019, 72 million euro, 72 million euro of the traveller accommodation budget went unspent. Um, and that's in the context of all the um, statistics that we've already referenced. And I suppose another key moment in the delivery on, in the development of traveller accommodation policy was the enactment of the Housing Miscellaneous Provisions Act in 2002, also known as the Criminal Trespass Legislation, which effectively criminalised the cultural practice of nomadism with no requirement of alternative accommodation to be offered. Um, and obviously leave that level of distress that comes from evictions. And that's something that on a, we've been found in breach of Article 16 of the European Social Charter in relation to those procedures. Um, yeah, so I suppose that, I hope that kind of contextualises our conversation today and that afterwards we'll be able to go into some solutions <coughs> on the current moments. So, okay. yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's really helpful. And I think it's really important to give a kind of contextualising um, the framework and the policy um, and what that currently is in terms of the impact um, so we're going to we're going to keep it, and th thanks for keeping that very precise as well. Um, so we're going to keep it to some of the national frameworks, um, and I'm going to go over to um, Rory Hearn. Um, and um, so over to you, Rory. Thanks, Bernard. And uh, just to make clear, it's Rory Hearn. Rory. It's not a Hearn, so <laughs> no link to any former T-shirt. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I always make that sure, uh, very clear. That uh, it's a very different uh, name and no, no relation okay. whatsoever. Um, but uh, thanks, and I'm delighted to be here. And thank you very much for the uh, the invitation to speak. Um, and in terms of, I suppose, the traveller accommodation crisis and housing crisis, as Emily said, um, in many ways, uh, and you, you know, it has been a crisis uh, for many, many years since the foundation of the state. Um, and if we look at what has happened, I think that in many ways travellers have become even more invisible, I think, within the housing crisis, even though for them the housing crisis has worsened their situations of housing exclusion. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit about homelessness because it was something that, that Emily mentioned and something that I've researched and worked on. And it is shocking to see the disproportionate impact, um, the disproportionate numbers of travellers who are experiencing homelessness and the numbers you mentioned there, um, in Dublin, for example, 9% of all homeless families um, in some of the, the counts that were done, 9% were travellers. Um, yet, as we know, just less than 1% of the population. Um, in, in terms of children being homeless, 12% of all children who are homeless are travellers. 25% of all children who are homeless outside of Dublin are travellers, a quarter. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, what are the factors that are leading to this, uh, along with the systemic and structural racism and discrimination, but there are policy reasons as well and policy changes that have happened. I was also struck by the figure that women make up 56% of travellers who are homeless, which is much higher than the proportion of women who are homeless overall. It's less than 40%. Um, and... Also, the, in terms of, I suppose, what we would call those intersecting kind of uh, inequalities and exclusion, that if we look at the, the work done by um, the Cork Traveller group who did research, found that a third of homeless family units had a member, a third of Traveller homeless family units 
had a member with a disability. So you're looking at traveler being affected by discrimination, then as I'll come on to explain, also been in recipients of uh, and need of HAP and suffering discrimination, and then disability as well, and how those intersecting inequalities must impact. And to think that they're in situations of homelessness, um, and as I'll explain a little bit shortly, all the trauma that goes along with that. Um, I, I tried to do a figure to highlight kind of what would this be um, in terms of the, the overall settled Irish population. If the settled Irish population had a similar proportion who are homeless as the traveller population, we would be looking at 125,000 people um, being homeless across the country. And I think it just shows that disproportionate impact of what is in terms of housing, and, and Porig is a much uh, better expert than me in, in this in terms of human rights and how it looks at homelessness. Homelessness is the most, um, as the previous rapporteur on housing uh, for the UN said, the most egregious violation of the right to housing. Um, because of its denial of so many other rights that are linked with it. Um, and if we look at you know, homelessness, some of the experiences, again, this was in the report, um, in terms of the, the work done by the RTAGW, um, the Traveller Accommodation Working Group, the quotes from some of the families who were experiencing homelessness. One talked about um, they were living in an overcrowded situation with their parents in a bay in a halting site, they had a young baby and three other kids. Um, they were on the housing list for nine years. They were living on the side of the road. Um, they kept, get moving on, get, kept getting moved on. They lived in the car for a while. Then they went homeless in hotels. And then they decided to move back to the parents' bay because of the unsuitable conditions. As they said, hotels weren't right for the children. That family would, are not counted as homeless. They're not in emergency accommodation. Therefore, they're not counted as homeless. Yet clearly, they are homeless, um, which raises a problem of how we count and measure homelessness. Um, I want to talk a little bit of policy because I'm very conscious of the time. That we know that local authorities have you know, failed to build adequate housing for uh, travelers. But one of the big policy changes over the last 15 years has been from councils building social housing to accessing social housing through the market. Through, through the likes of the housing assistance payment, the rent uh, accommodation scheme. They're getting it through the private rental sector. But what this has meant for travelers in particular is that they are subject to even more discrimination and exclusion. The figure from the Residential Tenancies Board said that their research found that 82% of landlords would not rent their property to a traveler. Um, so you have this situation whereby Travelers' access to housing in terms of being, what they're being offered is the housing assistance payment. Yet they can't access private rental accommodation because of the systemic discrimination that they're in. Therefore, this leads to the situation that either they can't find accommodation so they become homeless, or if they are homeless, they can't exit homelessness. They're left there simply because they can't access accommodation because of this discrimination. And we've had figures, um, Emily and Rosemary were telling me, uh, of one family being in accommodation, emergency hotel, I think it was for four years, four years in emergency accommodation. And yet we know from research that I've done with homeless families and others that being in emergency accommodation is deeply traumatic for families. It has psychological impacts, it has social impacts, and it is absolutely nowhere appropriate for no longer than weeks for children to be in um, emergency accommodation. And um, in terms of just to, in terms of that policy, 
Um, yeah, I think that's probably the main points I kind of okay. wanted to make about that shift in policy, and I'll come on to uh, the solutions as well. Okay, so. I think that's really helpful because I think it's kind of we're, we're covering some of the policy, the homelessness, the the you know some of the, the the I suppose when you drill further into it, you can see some of the challenges within that, and the um, and the system and how it's not not recording travellers in terms of homelessness. So the, the figures are distorted, and um, and we'll put, probably come back to that. Um, so just moving it on, and we'll hold the questions till later as we go around to everybody. Um, so actually, we'll, we'll continue then with this with yourself, Patrick, just to, if you can. Sure. Okay. Um, uh, my name is Pori Kenna. I'm a lecturer here in the university. Can you all hear me? This is my first question at every lecture because, you know, people are... Um, sharing this panel with experts here like Nora and uh, Emily and Rory, of course, is not an easy thing to do. So I have to try and focus on something that's not being covered. And I'm going to fall back on one of my favorite topics, which is the, the power of property rights in the Irish state and the Irish constitution. And I know that some of you here have been working on the centenary, looking back at the 100 years. What have we learned from that 100 years? And I'm going to really look at that a little bit more closely, really, in terms of property rights and how the courts balance property rights with the rights of travellers who are being evicted from unauthorised occupation of property. It, of course, highlights the front lines or the fault lines, if you like, in our um, human rights and constitutional law. So you'll be aware that property rights in the Irish Constitution have this remarkable, someone would say, sacrosanct position, where the state has not just to recognise them, but to vindicate them. So the state has to actually go out to protect and vindicate. At the same time, we have a body of human rights law, which we have seen emerging from the Council of Europe and other organizations, uh, around the <coughs> definition of home and the protection of the right to respect for home under the European Convention of Human Rights. And this is a very powerful piece of human rights um, jurisprudence. It requires a proportionality assessment when somebody is being removed from their home Home has a, a, an autonomous meaning. It's not necessary to be legally defined. It's somewhere <coughs> where people live. And so we have this body of human rights law which everybody subscribes to. Um, and then we also have this brilliant piece of property constitutional rights. And when these two collide, when these two things come together, we find some interesting developments. And that happened in January this year. In January 22, in the case of Clare County Council and Bernard and Helen McDonough, where this case was decided by the Supreme Court, balancing these two concepts, principles, or powers. And the judge, Jared Hogan, in the Supreme Court at the time, he pointed out that um, this was a really historic case, 100 years after the foundation of the state, and we're looking at this situation. And he, <clears throat> he said, of course, that the Irish legal system has not found it altogether easy to accommodate the distinct cultural traditions of the traveling community, such as nomadism and living in large family groups, within its traditional ambit of protecting and enforcing property rights. So you could say he really nailed the issue, really, before the decision. <clears throat> the facts of the case were fairly straightforward. The McDonough family were living in Clare County Council on unauthorized occupation of council land, as they say, without planning permission. They had been evicted previously from a whole lot of different sites under the trespass legislation. 
and there was now an injunction to evict them once again. They, with the support of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, challenged this injunction process on the basis that it breached their human rights, the right to respect for home under the European Convention of Human Rights. And so this case found its way to the Supreme Court after the High Court and the Court of Appeal. And so this was going to be a sort of historic decision. I think everybody knew that. So what did they decide? Well, the court decided that, yes, the European Convention of Human Rights Article 8 applies. Uh, travelers' caravans and mobile homes are homes for the protection of the European Convention of Human Rights. But they decided we have even stronger protection in the Constitution under Article 40, which is the inviolability of the dwelling. The dwelling of every citizen in Ireland is, as they say, inviolable. It's a bit of a dated word and shall not be forcibly entered save in accordance with law. And so they said, well, this requires a procedure and a consideration and something like a proportionality assessment. And so, of course, when we're reading this here, we're getting very enthusiastic that we're going to see dramatic changes in this whole issue. The next question that comes, what do we mean by proportionate? Is it proportionate to evict people uh, their, their homes to the side of the road if they have nowhere else to go. Is it proportionate? I suppose everybody here would say, of course it's not proportionate. You can't really put people on the side of the road if they don't have anywhere to go. And so basically that's what the court said. Well, that is, that is the position. It is we need some kind of proportionality assessment in all these cases. And this, of course, is not new. We have it already <coughs> for mortgage possession cases since about 2013, we have it for local authority tenants since 2012. So it's not particularly radical, but it is quite radical to say we need to have a proportionality <coughs> assessment when we are evicting travelers from what's called unauthorized sites. And so you might say, well, that's been dramatic. What a great success after 100 years. And then, of course, we come back and say, well, then they said we have to consider the particular issues here uh, what's, how do we balance the property rights? Uh, now, they said, well, there is a difference here because it's a local authority land. So it's not quite private property. This local authority already has an obligation to provide adequate accommodation, which they're not doing anyway. So in these circumstances, we find proportionality assessment means no eviction. So it's quite significant. They did say, however, of course, that if this was private land, then the court's first duty would be to vindicate the property rights of the owner. So let, let's not say that there's been a revolution as such. At the moment, the court's first duty would be to ensure that the property rights of the landowner are adequately vindicated. Um, but different considerations apply where it's a local authority. However, it is a significant development in the integration of human rights into this whole area. It's a major development, I would say, in the protection of home or dwelling and recognizing caravans as dwellings for the purposes of the Irish Constitution, which, of course, is one element of the right to housing. We need more. We need a constitutional change, which puts the right to housing at the same <coughs> level as property rights. Um, and so what is, my, uh, what is my concluding message? There has been great development, and it's, a lot of it has come about from organizations like the Irish Traveller Movement, 
uh, Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, taking test cases, raising the human rights issues, presenting them so that other people and other judges can follow them. But let's not forget, though, something 100 years after the state, property rights still trump human rights every time. That's it. Yep. <clears throat> I think that's really helpful, and um, and that case itself is significant. But the question about bringing, vindicating those rights, you also have to seek legal representation, senior counsel, and you have to assert those rights in terms of the High Court or Supreme Court. So you still have a long way to go, but doing that, I think that's an example in terms of the proportionate as assessment in terms of what they're asking is in terms of the assessment or proportionate in terms of an eviction procedure being carried out. And at the end of it, it is, you know, while it's welcomed, it's still looking at those steps that are taking place. So many families will stay, still face evictions um, in terms of being on the side of the road. But um, I'm just going to move across to Nora, who's been very patient. So, but, and I left nor to last, because I think when we're talking about national, it's really, really important <coughs> as well to get a local kind of context in this. And, you know, so Nora, I'm going to leave it up to yourself and to, you know, and um, just bring us into the local context. Thanks, Bernard. So, yeah, my name is Nora Corcoran and I'm a community development worker with the Galway Traveller Movement and I'm nervous, just bear with me, but um, I also <coughs> lead out on um, accommodation on our strategic planning. And I know, Park, you said experts, but to me, the experts are the people who have to live in these substandard conditions, the people who have that lived experience, those ones are the experts, and those ones are the, where the government should really come down and see every single day when children who live in substandard accommodation in a halting sites that's beside a waste facility have to go to school in the morning with an empty stomach because the smell of the noxious gases are making them feel physically sick. And one quote uh, really, uh, you know, stood out, uh, stood out to me because we, as well as that, we, um, with the Goa Traveller Movement, um, we um, started our Traveller Homes Now campaign back in 2017. So we linked in with the local uh, tra travellers in Goa, with Lean County. And, um, and then, then we did our, our four monitoring reports that we published. And one of the quotes was from Angela Delaney who said, they think we're rubbish because they leave us beside a dump. You know, and this is, this is just, for me, it just resonates. Like, I mean, I feel as I'm sitting here as a member of the traveller community that I have the responsibility of those families who do live in substandard accommodation to have their voices here today because they're, for the most part, without, you know, the allies, without the travel organisations, the government is not listening. The local authorities are not listening to those families. Um, we have the roadside families who are wait, children waking up in the morning who are the, the condensation is coming down and the clothes are damp. And where are the rights of the child? I mean, why have the United Nations put all these policies and legislation when the local authorities are ignoring the rights of the child? I mean, like, in this day and age, to me, that's just totally unacceptable. There needs to be accountability. It needs to be called out. Um, and then, of course, where are we now? We're two years into the middle of a pandemic because we are still in the middle of a pandemic. We, need to, we might be wearing for most masks, but we're still in the middle of a pandemic. We still have families living in overcrowded, substandard accommodation, right in the middle of, of COVID when, when it was at its worst. We had a thousand members of the traveller community 
who got COVID. We had a third of the families, the traveling communities in ICU. They didn't have the privilege of isolating. They didn't have the privilege of, of sanitary where they could wash their hands in warm water. Not when you have one tap in the portaloo. You know, so like a, a portaloo, like how in God's name are you supposed to like have proper conditions when you don't even have proper running water? So like COVID is still going on and the families, yeah, they might have a few portfolios, there might be a tap here, but for the most, the, the situation still hasn't changed. You know, only we, we, what we did, we organised um, in, in collaboration with the HSC that we organised to keep families isolating as much as we can. We organised a wraparound where we'd go around. We were out there in the front line delivering groceries to keep the families in. So by that, we, we actually kept the numbers down and then we obviously supported the families to get vaccinated. You know, and again, it's just kind of going back and, and saying to them, look, at, we know your situation is dire, but we want to support you as much as possible, you know, just to kind of keep you alive. So um, I like... I'm on the local traveller community, uh, the LTACC, okay, so I'm on that to represent the, the travellers. I'm on the housing SPC. And what really upsets me is that you don't have, they still don't have a voice in this. Sometimes I just feel as my role is tokenistic. I'm just ticking a box, you know, to kind of to keep the government happy. But I don't always like, you know, kind of keep the government happy there. And I always get the eyes up to heaven when Nora's there. But I have that responsibility again to bring the voice of those families to the table. So, and, um, you know, it's kind of, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Like, you know, and especially with our travel homes now coming, we're constantly keeping, you know, keeping it fresh in the government's memory and, and mind that we're not going away. We are a strong, resilient community. And what we do with our tenor participation groups, we try to empower the community to get, you know, to speak for themselves, to have that voice, you know, and for the most part, they would prefer it if you, we were just invisible but that's not going to happen not when i'm there not when our, you know our local travel organization always linking in with the families you know so um it's just for me seeing the families directly impacted by these conditions in 2022 it, it says a lot about <coughs> the country we live in and that's why we have to be strong we have to be on the the, the front line constantly advocating supporting challenging calling out and i'm just for me like i worked you know i worked in hospitality for 20 years and i'm with gtm for the last four years and it's the happiest place i am that i can be there to represent my community and while we are there we're not going away and i know someone said before between you and the Galway traveler movement you're my heart broke but i don't care that's why we're there we're going to break their hearts because we're there to represent our community and we're not going away so and one thing i just want to say before i finish and it this hasn't come from me i think it was i live Lynn, but if you're we need our the voices of the families need to be brought to the table because if it's about us, it shouldn't be without us. So I just want to say that. Thank yeah. you very much. So we're not going to get you away lightly, Nora. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, if you're looking at that, I think it's really important that the very community that you're trying to represent are also the community that are at the forefront. Um, and I think community development is really about putting the people who is impacted to the very front of that discussion and at the table and being inclusive and being part of the solution. Rather for, and for too long in the past, travellers weren't part of those discussions. So I, you know, so I think I commend you, Nora, in terms of being there. It's not an easy place to be at. It's, it's challenging, but also it can be very challenging and not seeing the outcomes. Um, and, but still given everything you have in order to bring about that change. And I, you know, and I think that's right across the board as well to the other panelists as well. Um, so I, I, 
one final question, and then after that, when people answer that, um, you know, we'll, we'll put it out to people. Um, so, just if you can sum it up, Nora, just in terms of solutions, um, if you were to pick one or two key changes, um, you know, just in terms of what you think would actually make a difference. So, for, so from earlier on, we heard about policy, and you know, we heard about Travis being research, but you know, um, but but looking looking going forward now, what would be needed in terms of policy implementation to make that change happen? Well, I suppose uh, there's loads, but um, some I can't say here. But anyway, the commitments, the commitments of the local authorities, they're laid out, you know, but they, they're just not properly implemented, you know. So we see this in the constant underspend. But if they can't, like we have, there is the also potential of the likes of Kina to lead out in a national, you know, scale if local authorities can't deliver, you know. Take it away from the local authorities, you know, give it to someone who will deliver because it's obviously not working. And for so long, it's like, if, if there is a saying, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Well, it has been broke, and we're trying to fix it, but we can't do it on our own. So that's okay. just. Okay. So are you, say, are you saying then that there's a need for a national drive agency? Yes. Uh, accommodation agency? Yes, absolutely. Perfect. And it has to be because if you look like, I mean, a year upon year upon year, we're still seeing the same issues, the substandard conditions, the, the lack of refurbs, and again, the substandard refurbs, because I link in with families, and this is what's happening there, but telling us, like, it's substandard. So if you're going to do it, please do it right, okay. you know. So. Okay. Nora, thank you so much. No and I'm sure there'll be questions coming, you know, please to go easy the, the <laughs> later. Um, Emily, just in terms of one or two key points on that, in terms of solutions. Yeah, I suppose, like, one thing, like, the overarching thing is that until there's more delivery of units, until people's lived experience is better on it on their day-to-day -day lives is improved then nothing that happens at a na national level yeah. matters but i suppose just to really link it back to some of the things that i think will lead to that um in 2019 the government uh, there was an independent review of the traveler accommodation act so that was carried out and published in 2019 and within that are 32 key recommendations for the improvement of the planning and delivery of traveler accommodation so i suppose the Two years in, we're, we've seen around six or seven of those implemented so far. So it's really that the scale of response has never matched the scale of the problem and the speed of delivery has never matched um, the level of need. So um, I suppose just to hone in on some of those recommendations that are particularly important, like Nora kind of um, alluded to that idea of a national traveler accommodation authority. So a national body that's job is to monitor and implement, so monitor, um, the planning and delivery of traveller accommodation at a national level because there is no accountability at the moment when local authorities fail to plan, when their TAPs, their traveller accommodation programmes don't plan for future need, um, when they aren't setting targets for traveller specific accommodation in some cases at all. So we need um, a national body that has sufficient power to intervene in those situations. And I think as well, like this whole question is such a political one because at a local level, elected representatives have the power to vote on traveller specific accommodation through a process called the Part 8 process. And obviously that has been used as a vehicle for systemic, both individual and structural racism when um, those elected representatives are lobbied um, to vote against these developments. So we want to see that Part 8 process just completely bypassed for traveller specific accommodation. Um, yeah. 
Can okay. I say one more? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And I think thirdly, um, another one of those recommendations, and it's so important in terms um, of nomadism, is the repeal <coughs> of the criminal trespass legislation um, to end, to completely end that legislation and completely review the eviction procedures um, as well. So those three. Okay, Emily, thank, thank, thanks for that. I think there are three significant areas there. The Traveller Accommodation Authority, um, the Part 8 Public Consultation in terms of planning, and the third was repeal the criminal trespass legislation, which realized with the Minister Helen McEntee in terms of the review of that legislation, which are really significant in the context of traveller culture, identity, and way of life. So they're really important and significant. Um, so I better get this one right. So it's Rory Hearn. <laughs> okay, not related to Bertie Hearn, but Rory. Um, <laughs> so just in, in the context then of, um, you know, some key solutions. Yeah. yeah, I think I would agree completely with the um, proposal and the idea to, you know, develop Cana um, as a housing association. And I think... If we look at policy over the last few years, social housing policy, housing associations, the not-for-profit organisations, have been really given an expanded role in delivering social housing. They're now delivering a half, building a half of all new <coughs> social housing. But we haven't seen the same expansion by Cana, and that is down to, as we were talking earlier, the lack of resourcing. So I think there needs to be specific resources allocated to Cana to, do, well, this would be a suggestion, and would be to allocate sufficient resources, funding, to Cana that it could develop to be quite a significant housing provider, um, providing um, traveller-specific accommodation, um, and also that it's given the land as well, because that's vital. Housing associations can't build unless they have access to land, so I think that has to be a resource to really, and there's no reason why that couldn't be delivering hundreds of units each year. You know, housing associations, individual housing associations are delivering up to three, four hundred a year. Why yeah. can't Cana yeah. as well yeah. be supported to do that? And I think it would give uh, the traveller community as well the independence to be developing the housing and developing the skills as well and the expertise as housing associations yeah. do. Um, the other one is in terms of measuring and how we develop housing policy. And I think we need to adopt the ethos framework, which is a way of a broader definition of homelessness and housing exclusion. Um, and measuring homelessness, which includes different types of, for example, hidden homelessness, insecure, unfit habitation. And currently, housing and po policy in Ireland and homelessness doesn't use that. I think we yeah. should use that. And finally, I think the right to housing. We need to put the right to housing in the Constitution. I'm part of a broad uh, civil society alliance yeah. um, called Home for Good, and we've developed a proposal for uh, wording um, to change the Constitution. It's now with the Housing Commission. Hopefully that will be recommended yeah. to hold that referendum next year. Um, and I think that is absolutely key in terms of making the state at all levels uh, constitutionally obliged to ensure people have access to adequate housing. Okay, I think that's excellent. Um, and it, you know, just, just to say that um, we're all engaged in that last one in terms of housing to be a constitutional right. And that is really important in terms of framing it and naming it, but also in terms of referendum itself. So, yeah, thanks, thanks so much for that. Um, Patrick, um, you have the final as I word said, on the solution. As I said, I knew it wasn't going to be easy to be on a panel with these experts. There's not much I can add. But I think there is. Uh, well, I think there is, yeah. <laughs> I agree with everything that's been said, and I agree with those recommendations <coughs> from the working group, the review. Uh, I also agree that we need to put the, the right to home 
on the same basis as the right to property in the Constitution, perhaps even at a higher level. And we also need to make sure that all the international agreements that we've signed up to, including the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and all of the conventions on non-discrimination need to be integrated into our legislation and implemented fully. And I think that'll have a couple of effects. One is that it will orient the institutions of the state to taking these things seriously. But the other thing I think it would do is it will have a symbolic meaning for the country as a whole to say that if we recognize these things after 100 years of the state, we're now mature enough to take these on board and say we're going to apply them. Um, thank you for that. And just today, we're well on track. We're at 5, sorry, 5, 5 p.m. now. So we're just going to put it out to people. So you've heard the national context in terms of the House and, and the framework and the policies, but you've also heard the realities on the ground is that there's, re there's good policy, but you've also heard that there's still a, a significant crisis in terms of provision of accommodation, homelessness, and also in terms of legislation that's still in place which really, you know, between, you know, between the criminal trespass legislation, <coughs> which was introduced, which for the very first, mo first time moved, um, moved, you know, the um, moved travellers from parking on private lands or public lands as a civil matter into a criminal. So that was absolutely, that just changed the whole, changed the way that the legislation was enforced. Um, so... The other side of this is then is the, just in terms of kind of you hear some of the, the suggestions in terms of going forward, but I just want to ask: Is there any questions from yourselves in terms of what you've heard, um, or any clarity that you would like to get? Now we got, that was a hand in the back. Just two, so we have the we we'll start with the yeah person in the green. You have the mic. Yeah, hi. Um, and just, introduce, just kind of introduce yourself, your name and who you are, sure. just before you start. Yeah, my name is Kate Miskla, and I'm here to represent Forza uh, Trade Union. <coughs> but I'm also the secretary of the Trades Council in Wexford. And where I come from, I'm actually from a, a, very, a county which has a very high traveller population. Yeah. And I just want to reiterate um, what Nora was saying about the SPCs in the local yeah. authority, because we actually have a representative on the one in Wexford. Um, but really, it's just a talking shop. So anything we say, and I just think something needs to be done with the local authorities. I think you're right to take it away from the local authorities, but it's definitely failed if, if, if by the figures, and I know there was a large amount of money in Wexford for the travel accommodation that wasn't used as well, but the fact that 72 million nationally yeah. is not used, um, something's seriously wrong. And okay. if there's anything we can do to help you to support, to change that, uh, bring it on. Absolutely. So we, I think we'll, we'll come back to you on that. Um, and thank you for that. That's more of a statement rather than a question. Um, and that's kind of shown more, you know, solidarity and um, uh, alliance. So certainly we'll come back. I've I seen so there was some, yeah. Again, just to introduce yourself and your name and then we'll come. Um, Lisa Connell and Forza Trade Union as well. Just to pick up on the point that you had made, Rory, um, <coughs> just around the constitutional right to housing. In order to reflect that into the Constitution, would there need to be work around changing anything within the Constitution on property rights, or what's the payoff between the two? Okay, we'll hold that. Hold that. We'll hold that question, right? Okay. And there was a, over here the the was it a pink top? Well, 
pink, red, red, pink. Bright and colorful. Uh, okay. Hello, I'm Anka Minescu. I'm a psychologist from University of Limerick. And my comment to you all is, is, is about how can we take this angle of homelessness that, that uh, disproportionately affects Irish travelers, but it is a national problem here, and more recently a Ukrainian national problem as well. How can we take that maybe as a point of unifying the Irish nation around the problems of travelers? Because unless you also fight especially that racism at especially yeah. that local yeah. council level, and especially in those neighborhoods where there's land where a site could go in, I don't think any more legislation will sort the problem. So, so I, I suppose for me it's about fighting anti-gypsyism, anti-traveler feeling has to go ho hand in hand with solving the ho housing crisis. But maybe in the case of travelers, there's a chance there to also show we are people too, we have these rights too, just as all these other people who are also homeless have it. Okay. So two aspects, I, or maybe just a comment, not a question, never mind. Yeah. Actually, it is a question, it is a question. So we're going to hold that question as well. Um, and there was a question to the front. So hand, there's two hands, one hand. Yeah, Tom, Thomas, we have. So I work for travel organisations, but <coughs> in, a, in a private capacity today. I'd just like to ask the panel, do you think that much has changed since 1963? Um, it's like, like in one way, I suppose, I'm in the work for a long time, I'm getting angry and angry, and I feel in 1963, they were just being more honest, you know, the language has changed, uh, but the practice, there's been very little change in the practice, you know, um, kind of, like I think we're being told lies a lot of the time. So when the government or a minister replies to PQ, you know, he, it's usually he, whoever the ministers uh, were in the past, you know, uh, they're referring to the framework for traveller accommodation delivery. There's no such framework, right? The Traveller Accommodation Act is known, and I would actually suspect deliberately being set up to be dysfunctional, you know, kind of, where you can always blame between a local official uh, or a local council. And if that doesn't work, you can pass the blame uh, between between the local and the national, right? So the act has been set up um, to fail from the outside. Since 1989, uh, it has failed, and they know it's failing, yet they're telling Europe, they're telling us in PQs, it's their framework. Um, yeah. The act gives direction, uh, the minister gives direction under the act, and the minister <coughs> has been given directions to local authorities. There's a number of local authorities, Cork City Council being one of them, uh, who's been ignoring it, all of them this time round, uh, and some of them the last time round. The minister never never gives a kick about it. The whoever the minister or previous ministers, the department never get, get, gives a kick about it. This is law breaking. Cox City Council breaks the law. Other local authorities break the law. Now, imagine, hey, if I don't pay my TV licence, kind of, the minister wouldn't, uh, uh, like wouldn't, <coughs> wouldn't, wouldn't take as casual an attitude. But the minister doesn't care. We have a National Travel Accommodation Consultative Committee that has three lines of um, it, 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 like terms of reference, kind of like the current chair, the professor. You don't need to be a professor to, to, to understand it. You know, the adequacy of travel accommodation programs, he knows they're being, being ignored. The NTACC never opens its mouth. The NTACC 
it meant to be there to be useless. Like even if it had it had good cheering for its blood a number of years ago, it hasn't been any more effective then either. And the current chair is now in his third term. He's there to be a goon, you know, to give cover for the for, for, for the department. Um, and I just want to um, like look look at the eviction proceedings. Um, the last government was it was it the Fine Gael Independence Alliance government still during the first <coughs> lockdown under COVID nineteen, um, they they put a moratorium on evictions and following the intervention of the ITM and other national travel organisations, travellers were included in that. And then we had this sort of this partial opening, and then we had the second lockdown, and there was another eviction mor uh, moratorium. But this time, travellers were taken out of it. So some racist official with some racist minister giving the backing that consciously decided, you know, well, it was good enough the first time around, but let's take travellers out of it. So it doesn't strike me as if there's been a hell of a lot of change. Um, and if we talk about the public sector duty, um, just talking about the 200 quid, like, like I saw a meme yesterday from, from someone in the Sligo Travellers Court, which is <coughs> a thousand of travellers that haven't received it. Well, it was, no, there's two sites in Cork that haven't received it. Uh, and the minister knows about it. And the minister of housing knows about it. The junior minister for travel accommodation knows about it. And the minister, like Minister Ryan, who has the brief for, for energy, uh, knows about it. You know? Well, did you do public, like, did you do an assessment for compliance under the public sector duty? I suspect not, because I don't see how it could have been passed. So I'd like to ask the panel has there been much of a change other than in the lingo being used by the state? Yeah. And um, just before we go, Tom, you've, you've said a lot there. Um, can, can I just ask you, what do you think the solution is? Well, the solution just, is, uh, 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 like an agency, but I can't see it happening, okay. uh, like a travel accommodation agency. Like, okay. like as Nora was saying, if local authorities are failing, we need someone to deliver on it. Well, they've been okay. failing for long enough. They've been failing for the last 20 years under the Travel Accommodation Act, um, and they've been failing since the beginning of the state. So someone needs to step in and not allow them to fail any longer. Okay. Uh, and they need the power to deliver on Okay, well said. So I think we're all, there seems to be a consensus here, and there's, you know, in terms of the priority in terms of a national traveller accommodation authority, um, in terms of oversight and overseeing and implementation in terms of travel accommodation. But I'm also going to come back now. So the question, there was a question for you directly, Rory, mm. from the back. Okay. Um, yes. Sorry. We... And those questions here as well. Yeah. Oh. Sorry, oh, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. Go, go, okay. you know, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Apologies. I, 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 I thought you were holding the mic for Thomas. I was. I was, I was, I was, I was kind of like, you know, here you are, Thomas. Not to hear because I yeah. agree with everything that Thomas yeah. said, and we've just had that conversation about the NTACC and having sat on the NTACC. Yeah. I can say that it doesn't. It never worked. But one interesting thing that in 2013. And what you've all left out from all of your presentations is the failure of HAP and the whole, the way in which the state has changed the way housing was delivered yeah. nationally, but the specific imp, uh, impact on travellers because of the fact that, uh, and that is why there's such a high number of travellers in homeless accommodation is travellers cannot access private accommodation full stop and uh, we know about the lack of delivery I'm not going to repeat all that but one other thing we have talked about uh, getting rid of the criminal trespass act but no mention of need for transient sites and uh, every local authority even somebody 
said to me from a local authority very recently, we're not going to deal with that until we've accommodated everybody. But people won't be accommodated if they don't have some places yeah. to move to. Sorry. Yeah. And no, no, that, that's fine. And I just say to people, we have an error. And normally, uh, this particular topic can take, as people would know, nearly a whole day as a conference. So we're not going to get through absolutely everything. Um, and you're only going to get, what I would say, a snippet of some of the issues. And I think that's what we're trying to cover. But just to, maybe just to say that the, um, the whole area in terms of nomadism is such a significant and important area in terms of travellers and who they are and part of culture and identity. And it's also so, such a significant part where the wider community just don't grasp or understand or get that. So nomadism is a core component of who we are, but it's not entirely who we are as in everything. Um, but it's, it's an important element in terms of nomadism and how we do that. But you're right in terms of delivery and accommodation and the, um, the need for not, I wouldn't say user even transit, but the need for network of accommodation across the Ireland of Ireland. Um, you know, and because part of this is when people come to Ireland and um, tourists, they're facilitated, they're supported, they're enabled. And it becomes a really nice way in terms of traveling what's called the wild Atlantic way. And you bring your car and you bring your camper, you know, you, and you know, it's actually even attractive to do it. But when a traveler does it, it's a criminal. And it can be seen as a criminal offense and therefore it's an impediment in terms of the wider society. So that has to change in that mentality in that way. So, th so I'm just highlighting that because not everybody understands or grasps that. But anyway, that's my point, Colette, to yourself to clarify that for everybody. So I'm going to come back and then we're going to try and wrap up unless there's any further questions. So there was a question just in terms of kind of the, um, uh, there's a few statements that were, there was absolutely, that was made and Thomas, you made some point, points there and, um, and you also agreed in terms of the house and agencies or as a house and authority, which is really important. But I'm just going to come back to the panel and say, look, you, what, what you've heard there, was there any response that you want to make back? Uh, yeah, just I suppose we mightn't have named HAP, Clet, but the conditions are there. It's all a collective, regardless of HAP or social housing, traveller, uh, traveller specific trailers, roadside, all the conditions are the same. As, ta as Bernard said, you, you can't name everything, but the results are the same. They're all substandard conditions and they all have to be um, uh, challenged and there has to be accountability for everything, regardless of what title they're under. Yeah. I'm actually going to give everybody an opportunity, so <coughs> just take your time and just don't, don't rush because I don't think any, does, as far as I know, I haven't looked at this, there's no other big commitments after this. But anyway, so we'll, <laughs> you know, and we ran a bit late. So just take your time, and uh, Emily, uh, just from what you heard. Yeah, just the, a, yeah, I, a few responses firstly yeah. to the person from Forza, the person who sits on the Wexford SCC from the trade union. Before every meeting, he emails me if there's anything on the agenda around traveller accommodation. And that is solidarity and that is being a true ally and re reflecting on your own role when you don't have a role that's specifically around traveller accommodation, but when you're in a position of power where decisions are being made, how can you make sure that the voices of travellers are being included, that you are raising those questions? And I think a lot of us in that room have that power um, and to be sharing that power and to be informing ourselves on the issues is such a key part. So I'd like to say thank you for that. And there's other... Um, and also you mentioned about those alliances in terms of that kind of anti-racist approach. And I think that's something we do try to do through being part of networks like INAR and being parts of also housing coalitions like Raise the Roof, like um, the National Housing and Homelessness Coalition to create those links in people's minds of 
what racism is in Ireland, who it is affecting, and how we can all work together to end that, because so much of it is around changing people's perceptions and their hearts and their like um, deep-rooted uh, hatred and racism towards groups. So, um, yeah, and I think that also links into what Thomas was saying around have things changed since 1963? And I think... You know, things change when people's mindsets change, when people aren't being elected onto councils who will go on radio stations and just try and belittle the traveller community and, uh, as a way of ga gaining votes. So unless we all stand against that mindset, that, that perpetuates. Um, they're just, yeah, and totally agree on the transient sites. And in 1995, the task force recommended there be a thousand units of transient accommodation built. Around 50 of those were ever delivered. They're all used for emergency accommodation, those kind of things. So that has never been implemented. So, yeah, I totally agree with Colette on that as well. Um, yeah. Um, Rory? Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I suppose just in terms of the HAP one, I, I thought I'd mentioned that um, in terms of when I was talking. <laughs> I thought I'd went into quite detail. So, obviously, I didn't communicate it very well. Um, in terms of HAP, because I was pointing out that um, it was because of that shift in policy that um, families, uh, <coughs> travellers were experiencing that disproportionate level of homelessness. Um, I was trying to make that direct link. And um, also the issue with HAP, of course, as well, is that when you're in receipt of HAP, you're no longer considered in housing need and you're taken off the social housing lists. Um, and of course, for travellers in particular, they're even more precarious if they're on HAP, because if they lose their accommodation, they're even less likely to be able to find more uh, another private uh, rental accommodation and therefore more likely to go into homelessness. So it's even more problematic that they define uh, HAP as social housing. The other issue, question on the Constitution, um, the proposal from Home for Good that we've made is that the insertion of a right to adequate housing would be put in as a subsection of 48A, which is where private property rights are stipulated. So it is a very clear <coughs> counterbalancing counterweight to private property. So when um, it, it's a very clear standalone right to adequate housing that the state would have to take on and implement in all policy and practice. Um, and, but also then in terms of just disability, judges would have to look at both the right to housing and the right to private property and having, has a, having equal weight. Um, and the other issue then, that question about homelessness, I wanted to respond. I think it's an interesting point about, you know, travellers' experience of homelessness, and, and in particular children as well. And I was struck by looking at the pictures in the, the exhibition, and um, I was visiting um, St. Margaret's uh, Halton site in Dublin there a while ago, and I did one of my podcasts uh, with some of the community from there. And I was really struck again by how children, you know, the children, the, the universal experience of childhood, you know, everyone can relate to it. And it's something about how do we humanize our common humanity and how do we express it in ways that, you know, everyone can stop seeing, you know, travelers, migrants and settled and see us all as what we are, which is a common humanity. And I think children really bring that out in a way that, you know, is so powerful. Um, and I think there is something about that experience of traveler uh, children who are homeless to bring that forward that people might connect with it more um, so there is, I think, something that's a, an interesting reflection, something that could be developed more. Um, and the question, the last one, um, in terms of Thomas, about change, I don't know in terms of, I haven't been around that long, but uh, it's, uh, there's something, only a, a reflecting a bit, is that the community development work 
that has been done over the last 30 years in terms of Irish traveller movement, Pavi Point, that voice is there maybe more than existed there. So it's not that the state has changed, um, that, but there is a change in terms of you know, having voice, in terms of being organised. And also I think you know, it's, it, there's more solidarity, I would think, amongst wider society as well, the settled community. But obviously there's also more expressed racism as well, which is a problem. So I think there's potential, real potential and hope in that, I suppose, growing allyship along with community development that that can bring, force the state to bring change. That's really, that's, you know, thanks, thanks for that. Really, that's really helpful because I think it's really important. Um, Audrey? Yeah, well, I'm not sure there's any more I can say, but I mean, we'll, we'll have to say something. <laughs> I suppose um, <laughs> at the end of the day, I suppose we're talking about resources, really, and we're talking about access to resources whether that's uh, accommodation, housing, education, access to the labour market, access to all of the positions in society, it's about access to resources, which is really a common question that travellers face with other groups in society. And so I'd say there are common bonds here that we can develop, um, which I think are, are being developed, actually. <coughs> and that's why I think the way forward is to see the, the whole question of traveler accommodation in that wider context of a denial of resources in a state that is ab has absolutely ample resources. And that's really the thing, I think, after 100 years to say, we do have a state with ample resources. Yeah. Why are we not allocating them fairly? Yeah. And Bernie, can I just say one no, thing? Yeah. Yeah. We are in the middle of a crisis within our community a mental and physical health crisis. We have a su suicide rate that's seven times higher than the general population. And this is all down to uh, inadequate accommodation. Under all the social terms, it all linked in. So, and again, it's, you go back to the 1963, that forced assimilation, that oppression. We're still being, you know, those policies are still being implemented in a different kind of way. So truthfully, w the, the community really needs to have apology from the state for, for causing this mental and physical health <coughs> crisis through all this, systemic discrimination you know and and it's just like we're losing we have a high mortality rate with our children our women our men everything and it's all down to the fact of this oppression and the forced assimilation yeah. yep. so again we're being seen as a problem but we didn't create the problem it was the government who created the problem and they need to stand accountable for that yes. so we're actually coming to a conclusion and I, I won't wrap up, but I did see one. I'm going to lay one more question. It was from Gus O'Connor. Um, and did I get that right? Yep. Okay. So what's your question? The, the mic is get, just coming down. So just introduce okay. yourself and uh, Gus O'Connell. Is on? You can hear me, no? Yep, we can hear you okay. well. Yeah. Uh, Gus O'Connell. I'm a councillor in South Dublin, and I've been involved with travellers, I suppose, for the last <coughs> 65, 70 years. And I'm currently the chairperson of the LTACC. And uh, I'm delighted to be here for these couple of days. And I compliment you on really getting down to the bottom because yeah. it is a question of human rights. That's where yeah. it starts. And then accommodation is the other side of that same coin. And just to share with you, if you like, the frustration and uh, just looking <coughs> just a few points. First of all, um, the process is there for approving housing or accommodation for travellers is skewed. And it means that it's so complicated that unless you have a manager 
or a CEO that is prepared to make it work. There are so many problems in it, it takes years, years. We have one site in our area, for example, and some people here know it. And for the last 14 years, it's on the TAP program. Hasn't been done yet. It's crazy. Uh, a local authority has to put forward their plans. They'll be scrutinized at national level. They'll be sent back down. Eventually, you might get funding. The second thing I would say is, there isn't enough consultation and enough involvement of traveler families and traveler development groups. They're peripheral. They have an advisory role, a consultative role, but they don't have a decisive role. And that needs to happen, whether it's done nationally or locally, unless we involve people themselves. And way back in the 80s, when I worked in the Youth Employment Agency, we had a very good project going that time with travelers in Dublin and New York City, and it worked extremely well. But it does need to be done. If we want to get culturally uh, proper uh, accommodation for travelers, we will have to involve traveler uh, families much more. Thirdly, transition sites have been raised already. It's a contradiction in terms. We stop travelers from uh, using any place on this little island unless we put them in there. That is not nom nom nomadism. We need to have hot uh, sites that will allow travelers to practice. Not everybody wants to do it, but those who do want to do it. The fourth point I would make relates to this. If I happen to be a settled member of uh, Dublin and I'm homeless or I'm in need of social housing, I'll get a house and I will pay rent. If I'm a traveler or a traveler family and I choose to live uh, in a traditional family, uh, traveler way, I will get a site and I will have to put my home on that site and I'll pay a rent on it. That is totally wrong. Some travelers can afford their own homes. Some, we have a, um, a loan scheme now in its infancy. It's very inadequate, but it's beginning. That may help some people on what I would call the affordable side, but an awful lot of travelers in my county who are living in inadequate sites and inadequate accommodation, they deserve to have a home that they can rent. Why not? At the moment, it will cost us to uh, provide a brick-and-mortar house, a minimum of 230000 You will get a good mobile for, uh, that is meant to, to fit people on this island in all kinds of weather uh, for around 120000 And, okay, both have a lifespan. So don't tell me that it's not economically viable. It is if we had the uh, wherewithal to do it. And it needs to be done. And finally then, what I would say to you is this. There is an unwritten policy, which is to force uh, members of the traveler community into fixed housing or settled accommodation. And I think all of this comes back basically to human rights. I don't know whether the accommodation should be delivered from a national perspective or from a local one. But I think unless we get the mindset changed, and I think what you're doing here is going a long way towards that, it needs to happen. We need to recognize that travelers, uh, and at the moment, if I look back, in 91, when I came into the county council first, there was a very strong local uh, apathy, and then it manifested itself in, in real um, uh, racism. 
and they wanted to stop travelers from being here and being there. Now there is much more of an acceptance, and a lot of the politicians like myself, some of them are very understanding. I won't say sympathetic, but they're very understanding. We need to build on that, whether it's local or, or national. So I commend you on what you're doing here. It's the way to go. But unless we accept that we must house travelers in as good accommodation as everybody else requests, then we're going to go nowhere. It's a basic human right, has to be tackled. Mila Margaret. I think myself and Gus go back a long way in terms of the local travel accommodation consultant committee, and I have to commend Gus and, uh, and, and many others who, um, you know, um, and as a, and, and they're not in the majority; they're in the minority um, in terms of local ele local elected representatives who are really pushing for changes to take place. But just in terms of the, the, the I'll, I'll wrap it up, and I just want to really um, thank the panel. Because um, I, I, I too feel, you know, that you know that the engagement discussion does a lot of knowledge, insight, um, and yes, you know, part of this is that we cannot do this by ourselves. So I know Rory is a great supporter and ally, not only to travellers but to a lot of other groups as well. Um, and I know in terms of the work of of Galway, which is significant and you know and enabling and empowering. And I, I think it's really important that whatever we do, we just can't do it by ourselves. So. The onus and responsibility should not entirely be with the travel community. It should not be about an, that the community must be enabled, must be supported and be at the table. The reality is there's a systematic system in place that is institutionalized and is embedded within racism and is, to, you know, and is not addressing the inadequacy of you know, children and women who are living in some of the worst substandard accommodation um, you know, in Ireland. And that is a reality. But the, but the other side of that is, not everybody understands or gets that. Mm. Until we get to a stage where somebody says, it's absolutely not acceptable, re regardless who you are, that any child on this Irish, this island, have not, do not have water, sanitation, or electricity. Until we get to that stage, and stop putting the onus on Travers and me, and other people, Nora, and other people. You know, we have to get to that stage. And the other side then is that, um, in terms of the, the, you know, there is, change, and, I've, you know, and part of that is we're working towards that, and I sit in the programme board and expert report in terms of travel accommodation, and we report back to the Minister. But there is change. But part of it, if we didn't believe that, we wouldn't be here. You know, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, but we have to show, but that has to continue in terms of the, the, the work of ITM, the work of Galway Travel Movement, the work of Rory in terms of, you know, in terms of policy and change, and part of the Raise the Route, and the work of allies. Um, who are here, like yourself, Patrick, and people who are in the room as well. So we need to do, we need to bring that about in order that those steps can take place. But but in doing that, um, I, you know, that's a partnership. That's a civil society. That's groups. That's politicians. That's ministerial, and that's everybody trying to, you know, uh, address the, the the significant concerns that are currently there. Because it is a fundamental impeach, impeachment of people's basic fundamental right to have adequate, culturally appropriate, safe provision accommodation on this island, and it's just not acceptable. Um, but the idea of this, this preliminary discussion was just to touch on it, so it's a snippet, um, you know, and I, I, you know, and it just showed, and I want to thank people for holding on, because, you know, we, we've ran over time, 
um, we're at 5.30 and we could have gone longer. So again, thank you so much and, and thank you.